Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun here. Glad you could join us. Okay, let us get into it. We have an Israel story here from the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 11, 2022. A desperate plea to Israel for early release. Palestinian 20 has languished in prison after a 2015 attack his cousin committed and is mentally struggling. From the Associated Press. Jerusalem. It was a crime that convulsed Jerusalem. On a fall's day seven years ago, 13-year-old Palestinian Ahmed Manazra and his 15-year-old cousin tore through the streets of a Jewish settlement in East Jerusalem armed with knives. His cousin Hassan critically wounded a 13-year-old Israeli boy who was leaving a candy store and stabbed an Israeli man. He was shot dead by police. Ahmed was run over by a car, beaten and jeered by Israeli passerby, passersby. Now months, Manasra, a 20-year-old in isolation and tormented by psychosis, has asked for an early release from prison after completing two-thirds of his sentence. Several courts have rejected his request, arguing that even if prisoners would ordinarily be eligible for, uh, for release after so long in prison, Manasra, a terror convict, was not, regardless of his age or mental condition. The Israeli Supreme Court will decide whether to hear his appeal in the coming days. His case has been a lightning rod for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict in sensing Israeli Jews who viewed Manasra as a terrorist seeking to kill Jews his own age and enraging Palestinians who saw him as the victim of a vicious mob and unfairly and an unfair trial punished for a crime his dead cousin committed. A graphic video of Manasra lying, to, lying on the street bleeding from his head while Israelis taunt him, garnered millions of views. His, his lawyer argued at the time that Manasra had sought to uh, frighten Jews in retribution for Israeli policies toward the Gaza Strip, not kill them. In the last six years since Manasra was convicted of attempted murder and sentenced to nine and a half years in prison, doctors say he developed schizophrenia in solitary confinement and tried to harm himself and others. As of Thursday, he has spent 354 days in isolation. On Tuesday, he told his lawyer he drank bleach. Just hours later, Israel's Attorney General asked the Supreme Court to dismiss the appeal for Manasra's early release, citing a 2018 counterterrorism amendment. Manasra's lawyers say it's the first time a parole committee retroactively applied uh, the law that forbids early release for security cases. Rights groups have decried the law as creating two separate legal norms for Israeli and Palestinian convicts. People who commit rape are eligible for early release, but Ahmed, who was arrested at age 13 with a prison sentence that's, endang that's endangering his life, is not, said Bedour Hassan, an Amnesty International researcher. Typically, in Israel, those younger than 16 are sent to juvenile detention centers where they get education and counseling in, in better conditions than normal prisons. Then judicial officials decide whether to transfer them. Manasra was sent to a public prison for, uh, for Manasra's family and supporters. His transformation from child who cared for birds and loved soccer into a mentally ill high-security prisoner with a growing tendency toward despair is a dark warning about the violence of the Mideast conflict and its effect on the younger generation. 
When he was 13 and he needed his mom the most, he was thrown into prison. His mother, Maysun Manasra, said from her, their home in Beit Hanina and in East Jerusalem. It's just across the highway from the settlement Piscat Ziv, where surveillance video had shown the knife-wielding boys chasing a man through the street. The prison only offered pain. A rights group, Defense for Children International Palestine, estimates that 700 Palestinians under age 18 are arrested every year in the occupied West Bank, and hundreds more in East Jerusalem. Between 2016 and 2021, the group documented 155 cases of prolonged solitary confinement in the West Bank, which Israel captured in the 1967 Middle East War. The teenagers are typically held in a 3-foot by 5-foot cell flooded with endless light, the group said. Their only human contact is with interrogators. They return to their families deeply scarred, said Aid Abu Akwaish, the group's accountability program director. We learn from their parents that they become a different person, he said. According to Manasra's family and lawyers, he is locked in a small cell for 23 hours a day. He struggles with paranoia and delusions that keep him from sleeping. Authorities first moved him to isolation in November of 2021 after a scuffle with another inmate. He became so terrified by his hallucinations that he is taken to the psychiatric wing of Ramallah Prison in central Israel every few months. Doctors give him injections to stabilize him before sending him back to solitary, his family says. The Israeli prison service, said Manasra, is kept in a suspension, is kept in a supervision cell and not solitary because of his mental state. It did not respond to questions about the difference between solitary and a supervision cell. His health condition stabilized and there is no reason for continued hospitalization, it said. His father, Saleh Manasra, describes the described the conditions as agonizing. He speaks to no one but the worms on the cell floor, he said. He imagines someone is going to kill him. He imagines someone is chasing him. Saleh Manasra said prison, prison authorities often deny his request to visit his son. Through the uh, plexiglass every few months, he can tell that his son is getting worse and worse, he said. His son's only plea is that he be allowed to rejoin the other inmates. Nasra's mental anguish started soon after his arrest. Video leaked from his interrogation at age 13 shows him crying and pounding his head in frustration as Israeli interrogators shout questions at him about the attack. At the time of his arrest, Children under 14 could not be held uh, criminally responsible under Israeli law. The trial dragged out. Manasra was convicted after his 14th birthday. Two years later, lawmakers cited his case as, the, as they had passed a law allowing 12-year-olds to be imprisoned on terrorism charges. They're treated like adult security prisoners, said Naji Abbas, case manager at the nonprofit Physicians for Human Rights Israel. After repeated requests, Israel prison authorities allowed a doctor from the nonprofit organization to diagnose Manasra, then 18. Considering that he and his family have no previous psychiatric history, Jerusalem-based psychiatrist Noah Bar Haim attributed Manasra's schizophrenia to the psychological toll of the prison. He continued incarceration 
His continued incarceration will inevitably cause his illness to deteriorate and create a permanent disability, she warned, recommending immediate release and intense psychiatric care. Instead, he was placed in isolation. Over the last few years, his lawyer, Khalid Zabarqwa, said that Manasra has tried to saw his wrist with whatever sharp edge he could find in his cell. Despite the attention his case has drawn and the outrage at his spawn, his parents insist that while growing up, their son didn't understand the conflict that determined his life. They call him a terrorist. I don't think he even knew what he was doing or what that would mean, Maysoon Manasra said. That was a desperate plea to Israel for early release from the Associated Press out of the perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 11, 2022. Now let's uh, continue international with an opinion article here from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 7th, 2022. Anti-Semitism's imaginary Jew is the target in Brazil's scary demonstrations. Even in the country with a minuscule Jewish population, a free-floating hate-driven conspiracy lives on by Clifford M. Cohen. While Kanye West's deranged anti-Semitic ramblings continue to draw global attention, a more insidious form of anti-Semitism has been making noise in South America, an anti-Semitism based on what one Brazilian academic calls the imaginary Jew. In June, at the invitation of Jewish uh, headers at Florianopolis, capital in the southern Brazilian state of Santa Catarina, I met state legislator Felipe Estevao to discuss his sponsorship of bills to combat anti-Semitism and mandate Holocaust education. Estevao's efforts were, of course, welcome, but I thought I lived and worked in Brazil as a rabbi and traveled there frequently, only very recently did I grasp their importance. Brazilian Jews and many non-Jewish Brazilians were shocked last week by images from Santa Catarina of thousands of Bolsonaro supporters protesting the results of the October 30th election, standing at, a, at attention, giving the Nazi salute while singling the Brazilian while singing the Brazilian national anthem. The Confederacio Israelita do Brasil, Brazilian Jewry's key umbrella institution, quickly responded, stating, Nazism preaches and practices death and destruction. Brazilian society cannot tolerate attitudes like this. Demonstrations protesting the Brazilian election results took place throughout the country, but the neo-Nazi element is especially strong in the, south, uh, the country's south. This might seem odd. Eduardo Gentil, president of Santa Catarina's Jewish community, notes that the state is home to only about 500 Jews. As this is less than one-thousandth of one percent of the population in that state, a strong undercurrent of anti-Semitism might seem unexpected. But then... Anti-Semitism is a flea-floating, hate-driven conspiracy and doesn't need to be tethered to anything, not even to real Jewish people. In Santa Catarina, there's also history. Long a destination of German immigrants, the state was home to the first and perhaps largest Nazi party affiliate outside Germany. German culture has historically been honored in this part of the country. For many, Gentle explains, this cultural background provided a natural path to neo-Nazi activities, even though few, if any, of these individuals had ever met a Jew. Though tempting, we cannot blame protesters' anti-Semitism on um, Bolsonaro. It predates him. 
We can, however, ascribe to him their ease at being open about it, as if indirectly he made it clear Brazilians' constitutional right of liberdade de expressão could uh, be taken to the limit. Much has been written about Bolo Bolsonaro modeling himself after Donald Trump. Perhaps he was impressed by Trump's very good people on both sides comment after the Charlottesville, Virginia marchers chanted, Blood and soil, Jews will not replace us. Anti-Semitism without Jews is not as strange as it might seem. Shakespeare likely knew no Jews, but that did not prevent him from writing The Merchant of Venice. Likewise, Chaucer had no first-hand knowledge when he wrote the, the Prioris tale. Similarly, Santa Catarina's Bolsonaroistas may not know any Jews, but they know the anti-Semitic tropes that have been used against Jews for centuries. Gentle suspects that the large numbers of those demonstrating do not know the historical context of the salute they gave. They followed the lead of the individuals who organized the demonstration. The willingness to follow is itself frightening. And all the here into um, and it figure uh, much into the protesters' actions. Uh, it absolutely does among the many evangelicals who are Bolsonaro's most fervent supporters. The evangelicals are philo-Semites, not out of love for the Jewish people, but because of the role of the Jews in their theology. The reestablishment of Israel is a necessary condition for the second coming. Michael Gurman, a sociology professor at the Universidad Federal de Rio de, Je de Janeiro, studies contemporary Brazilian Jewry. He notes that evangelical supporters of Bolsonaro often traffic in stereotypes of Jews, shrewd and unwily in businesses, uh, views admiringly held by the extreme right and articulated by Bolsonaro himself. German also believes that the anti-Semites and the putative philo-Semites have something in common. They are fixated upon a Jew who does not exist. Both neo-Nazi protesters and right-wing Christians base their beliefs on what I call the imaginary Jew, a fictional stereotype. The political uh, impact is bad enough, and that so many in Brazil are so invested in an image of Jews uncon uh, unconnected to reality can't be good. The uh, co-option of the imaginary Jew is difficult to counter. And the problem is not limited to Brazil, where Jews number less than one in every 2,000 people. Bolsonaro's Brazilian Brazil reminds us Jews, us real Jews, that danger comes in many forms. That was Anti-Semitism's Imaginary Jew is the Target in Brazil's Scary Demonstrations by Clifford M. Colwin from the Opinions section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, November 7, 2022. Clifford M. Coleman is Rabbi Emeritus of Temple B'nai Abraham in Livingston, New Jersey. All right, and here's this one from the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 30th, 2022. New photos shed light on 1938 Nazi horror. Images show how Kristallnacht's pogrom was orchestrated from the Associated Press. Jerusalem. Harrowing previously unseen uh, images of from me again have surfaced in a photograph collection donated to Israel's Yad Vashem Memorial, the organization said. 
One shows a crowd of smiling, well-dressed middle-aged German men and women standing as a Nazi officer smashes a storefront window. In another, in another, a brown shirt carries heaps of Jewish books, presumably for burning. Another image shows a Nazi officer splashing gasoline on the pews of a synagogue before setting it alight. Yad Vashem, the World Holocaust Remembrance Center, released the photographs on Wednesday to mark the 84th anniversary of the November 9th and 10th pogrom, also known as Kristallnacht, or the Night of Broken Glass. Mobs of Germans and Austrians attacked, looted, and burned Jewish shops and homes, destroying 1,400 synagogues, killing 92 Jews, and sending another 30,000 to concentration camps. The violence is widely considered a, st a starting point for the Holocaust, in which Nazi Germany murdered 6 million Jews. Uh, Jonathan Matthews, head of Yad Vashem's photo archive, said the Nazis dispelled a Nazi myth that the attacks were a spontaneous outburst of violence rather than a pogrom orchestrated by the state. Firefighters, SS specials, police officers, and members of the general public are all seen in the photos participating in the Kristallnacht. The films were an integral part of the events. Matthews says these were the first photos he was aware of depicting actions taken, taking place indoors as most of the images we have of Kristallnacht are images from outside. Altogether, he said, the photos give you a much more intimate image of what's happening. The photos were taken by Nazi photographers during the pogrom in the city of Nuremberg and the nearby town of Firth. They wound up in the possession of a Jewish-American uh, serviceman who served in Germany during World War II. How precisely is uncertain. He never talked about them to his family. His descendants, who declined to give his name, donated the album to Yad Vashem as part of the institution's efforts to collect Holocaust-era objects kept by survivors and their families. Yad Vashem said the photos helped demonstrate how the German public was aware of what was going on and that the violence was part of a meticulously coordinated pogrom carried out by Nazi authorities. They even brought in photo photographers to document the atrocity, atrocities. Uh, Yad Vashem chairman Danny Dayan said the photos will serve as everlasting witnesses long after the survivors are no longer here to bear testimony to their own experiences. Despite Nazi censorship, the Associated Press was able to send pictures from Kristallnacht when it happened that were widely used in the U.S. The images included a burning synagogue, a youth preparing to clean up glass from a Jewish shop that had been vandalized, and people standing outside damaged shops in the aftermath of the attacks. That was new photos shed light on 1938 Nazi horror from the Associated Press. Out of the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 11, 20. 22. And we move back here at home. This is from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November, November 8, 2022. Weinstein accuses grilled on subsequent interactions by James Queeley. Kelly Sifford said she wanted to confront her assailant. In 1991, Sifford was a 24-year-old aspiring actress when she met Harvey Weinstein at the Toronto Film, International Film Festival. She enjoyed the conversation about novels and films they had over a few glasses of wine and thought it was a great opportunity for her nascent career to know the Hollywood mogul, she testified last week at Weinstein's rape trial in Los Angeles. 
She recalled how Weinstein invited her to his hotel room to watch an Irish film he, w he wanted to adapt, telling her he thought she'd be great for, for a part in it. But within minutes of entering the room, Siffard said, Weinstein was half undressed, clawing at her skirt. He said, she said she raped her that night. Seventeen years later, Siffard saw Weinstein again. Thinking she'd finally get a chance to demand answers, she agreed when he again suggested a meeting in his hotel room. But when she arrived, Siffard said, Weinstein's aides left, uh, left the room, and after a brief conversation, he masturbated in front of her without her consent. During his cross-examination, Alan Jackson, one of Weinstein's defense attorneys, made it clear he thought Siffard's story was preposterous. If Weinstein had raped her, he asked, why would she willingly be in a room alone with him again? You know, when you got up from the table, you were not going upstairs to discuss business, Jackson told Siffard. Jackson's line of inquiry was the type many of Weinstein's accusers have had to face as his Los Angeles trial on charges of rape and sexual assault enters its third week. In all, eight women are expected to testify against the former film producer in the coming weeks. They have been, or probably will be, grilled, as Siffard was, over contact they had with Weinstein after he allegedly raped them. To par parade the strategy, prosecutors have brought in an expert on sexual assault to counter what one described as the rape myths offered up by Weinstein's lawyers. This is probably the most difficult rape myth for people to grasp, that it is not uncommon for individuals to have subsequent contact with the perpetrator. Some people have continued contact because they want to decrease collateral damage. Forensic psychiatrist Dr. Barbara Ziv told jurors, referring to fears held by sexual assault victims that reporting their abuser might harm them professionally. That concern could be significant in the case of Weinstein, who wielded immense power in Hollywood between 2004 and 2013 when the alleged assaults occurred, prosecutors say. Many of his victims were uh, aspiring actresses and models who have said they feared being blackballed if they spoke out against the man behind the Oscar-winning films such as Goodwill Hunting and The English Patient. On Monday, former actress and screenwriter Lauren Young testified that she decided not to call the police after Weinstein allegedly assaulted her in 2013 at the Mondage Beverly Hills because she believed it was possible he had police officers on his payroll and thought he could have me killed. Young testified at Weinstein's 2020 rape trial in New York, accusing him of groping her and masturbating in front of her in a hotel bathroom after he invited her to meet to discuss a screenplay. The day after that incident, Young returned to the hotel where she met with Weinstein's executive assistant Barbara Sch Schneeweiss to continue discussions about her script. Jackson zeroed in on Young's decision to go to the follow-up meeting, questioning why she would do so if she feared Weinstein if she feared Weinstein as she claimed. He displayed emails between Young and one of Weinstein's employees in which she arranged to receive tickets to a pre-Oscar party. I didn't know what, I was cap what he was capable of. I was more afraid not to go, Young said of the meeting with Schneewitz. Young said she feigned interest in the pre-Oscar party out of fear of retaliation if she did not attend. Uh, Jennifer Siebel Newsom, wife of California Governor Gavin Newsom, is expected to face questions along similar lines when she takes the stand. 
Sable Newsom said Weinstein assaulted her in 2004 or 2005 when she was trying to establish herself as an actress. In the years after the alleged attack, Sable Newsom kept in touch with Weinstein, a potential fundraiser for Democrats. The mogul's attorneys have said she solicited donations from him as her husband ascended politically. She brought her husband to meet and party with the man who had raped her. Who does that? Defense attorney Mark Worksman asked during his opening statements last week. The Times does not identify victims of sexual assault unless they have spoken publicly. While the victims in the Weinstein trial have been granted anonymity on, on the stand, Siebel Newsom revealed in a 2017 essay that she had been abused by Weinstein. Sifford, through her attorney, asked that her name be published after she testified last week. Other accusers include Masseuse uh, Jules Bindi have spoken publicly about the alleged assaults. During testimony last week, Bindi said Weinstein hired her for a massage in 2010 when he was staying at the Montage Beverly Hills. Afterward, Bindi said Weinstein barged into the bathroom while she was washing her hands, backed her against the wall, and groped her while masturbating. After the alleged attack, Weinstein calmed, uh, calmly told Bindi, Now I know I can trust you. We're close friends, she alleged. He offered to help Bindi publish a book about naked massage through his company, Miramax's publishing arm, and asked her for her home address. Bindi told Weinstein where she lived. She told jurors last week she did so out of the terror she felt in the immediate aftermath of the assault. But Weinstein's defense team has portrayed the moment and her contact with the mogul in subsequent months as evidence that their sexual encounters were transactional rather than assault. Bindi agreed months later. Like Sifford, she had an ulterior motive, telling jurors she planned uh, to record the encounter and get Weinstein to admit assaulting her. Instead, she said, he attempted to masturbate in front of her again. This time, Bindi testified she allowed it on the condition that he not touch her. In the moment, Bindi recounted to jurors, she made the calculation that if she took control of the situation, Weinstein wouldn't attempt to rape her. But Worksman seized on her explanation, citing the potential book deal as evidence that she was satiating Weinstein's desire for favors. Jane Manning, director of, uh, of the Women's Equal Justice Project and a former sex crimes prosecutor in New York, said Worksman's approach failed when he used it against women in Weinstein's previous rape trial. Two of the accusers in that proceeding, Mimi Halil and Jessica Mann, had continued relationships with Weinstein after he assaulted them and a jury still found him guilty of raping them. Given Weinstein's power, Manning said, his defense team is oversimplifying the pressure each woman faced to acquiesce to him. All of the women he sexually assaulted knew this about him, Manning continued, so for many of them, it seemed like there was only one option, try to go on with life as normal when it came to dealing with Harvey Weinstein. That was Weinstein Accusers Grilled on Subsequent Interactions by James Queeley from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, November 8, 2022. Right, we actually have a couple of uh, sports stories here. This is for, uh, first one is from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 9, 2022. Suspended Irving sits down with Silver from Staff and Wire Reports. 
Suspended Brooklyn Nets guard Kyrie Irving met with NBA Commissioner Adam Silver on Tuesday, a person with knowledge of the meeting said. The Nets banned Irving for at least five games without pay Thursday after he refused to say he had no anti-Semitic beliefs. That came hours after Silver said Irving made a reckless decision to post on his Twitter feed a link to a film that contains anti-Semitic material and said he would be meeting with him within a week. They finally did Tuesday, the person told the Associated Press, speaking on anonymity because the uh, meeting and its details were private. Irving eventually deleted the tweet and issued an apology on Instagram after failing to do so when he met with reporters earlier Thursday. But by then, Silver said he was disappointed that it had taken so long for Irving to apologize and that he hadn't announced the material in Hebrews to Negroes, Wake Up Black America. That was suspended Irving sits down with Silver from staff at Y Reports out of the sports section of the Los Angeles Times Wednesday, November 9, 2022. Here's another short article from the sports section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, November 11, 2022. Snyder, NFL, face lawsuit in D.C. From staff and wire reports. The Attorney General for the District of Columbia announced Thursday that his office is filing a civil consumer protection lawsuit against the Washington Commander's owner, Daniel Snyder, the NFL, and Commissioner Roger Goodell. The suit, in, uh, the, suit the product of a, a year-long investigation, alleges the commanders and the league colluded to hide what they knew about workplace misconduct that was pervasive with the club. Snyder already had been suspended by the NFL. In June of 2021, the NFL fined Snyder's organization $10 million for having a toxic workplace culture but did not publicly release the findings of independent investigator Beth Wilkinson. That was Snyder NFL faced lawsuit in D.C. from Staff and Y Reports. Actually, this particular one was by Sam Farmer, and this was from the sports section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 11, 2022. All right, and now let's uh, start going on to some entertainment news, starting with this one from the parade section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, April, uh, November 6, 2022, from the Walter Scott Personality Parade section. Walter Scott asks, Dan Levy. The Schitt's Creek star, 39, hosts the Big Brunch, November 10, on HBO Max, an eight-episode cooking competition reality series in which talented chefs vie for a $300,000 cash prize by serving up their best brunch recipes. Levy also judges alongside restaurateurs Sola L. Whaley and Will Guidara. Question. What sparked the idea for the big brunch? Answer. A love of my friends who work in the culinary arts, many of whom were affected by the pandemic and restaurants shutting down. I love their desire to provide for people in the most human way, which is to feed us. Question. How did you cast the cooks? Answer. To qualify, these people had to be doing something extraordinary with their communities. Oftentimes, chefs are doing more than working in a kitchen. They're mentoring people, and we get to explore that. We found 10 people who are doing amazing things and telling incredible stories through their food. Question. Can you cook? Answer. No, 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 no. Nobody wants me to cook. For, for them, I am the ultimate dinner party guest. I'm incredibly grateful. 
I will eat pretty much anything, but no, I cannot cook. I don't have the instinct. I can make pancakes, and those, and those sometimes come from a box. Question. What are you most proud of with, the, with Schitt's Creek? Answer. When you set out to make a show, you try to have a good time, and you try to tell stories as much as, with as much clarity, focus, intention, and integrity as you possibly can. Did I have any idea that kids would be coming up to me on the streets saying, I came out to my parents using dialogue from your show? The answer is no. Has it made the experience that much more meaningful for me? Absolutely. That was Walter Scott Asks Dan Levy from the Walter Scott Personality Parade section of the Parade section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, November 6, 2022. Okay, on to... Uh, two articles from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, November 11, 2022. First one we got here, Personal Triumph for Spielberg. The Fablemans is a marvelous ramble through the director's early years by Justin Chang, film critic. More than once during his fabled career, Steven Spielberg has been uh, dismissed as a technician masquerading as an artist. As the most popular of American filmmakers, the logic goes, he must also be the most impersonal. It's a judgment that doesn't quite explain the intensely personal connections a lot of us feel to his movies. Or does it? More than any other director, Spielberg confounds the notion that the personal and the popular, or the technician and the artist, are fundamentally at odds. The intensity of feeling uh, you're experienced on your the intensity of feeling a feeling you experienced on your first or third close encounter with a Spielberg classic, maybe you uh, levitated out of your seat at Raiders of the Lost Ark, or had your nerves shredded by Jaws, was likely p- so pure that it felt like yours and yours alone. Never mind that millions of moviegoers around the world felt the same way. And so it's worth considering exactly what it means to describe the Fablemans, Spielberg's piercing, rollicking, and altogether marvelous ramble through his early years as his most personal work. That assessment may be correct if we assume personal to be synonymous with autobiographical, and also if we overlook the snippets of family history that he's woven almost subliminally through his early films. Fire up 1941 and Saving Private Ryan, and you'll catch stray glimpses of his father's World War II stories. E.T. and Close Encounters of the Third Kind endure not only as wondrous alien visitation fantasies, but as portraits of families in disarray, something that emerged directly from the pain of his parents' divorce. But the Fablemans... Uh, Movingly dedicated to Spielberg's parents, Arnold and Leah, is his first picture to put that particular divorce front and center, along with uh, various other intimate, semi-fictionalized details called from his post-war upbringing. He's grafted those details onto a young alter ego named Sammy Fableman, first seen as a young boy played by Matteo Zorian Francis DeFord. Spielberg, sharing a writing credit for the first time with his regular collaborator, Tony Kushner, West Side Story in Lincoln, rummages through a treasure chest of old anecdotes and memories, stringing together road trips and sporting events, summer vacations and Hanukkah gatherings. There's a death in the family, a couple of bullies, a a memorable first kiss, and even a prom night climax. And of course, there are movies 
Lots of movies, from Cecil B. DeMille's The Greatest Show on Earth to John Ford's The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, whose wryly memorable ang- axiom, print the legend, provides a clue as to how to approach this alternately truthy and truthful cine memoir. It's hardly accidental uh, that uh, Sammy's story begins with a life-changing trip to the pictures in the early 1950s and finds him wandering a Hollywood back lot more than a decade later. In between the story, in between the story zigzags from New Jersey to Arizona to California, tracking the genesis of a young man's life uh, lo- young man's lifelong love affair with the movies, a romance that will prove mutually beneficial even if Sammy's obsession comes at a price. Art is no game, roars his great-uncle Boris, a wonderful Judd Hirsch, in a barnstorming, thesis-underlying gem of a monologue. Art is as dangerous as a lion's mouth. It'll bite your head off. Boris, a former circus performer with the air of an ancient prophet, knows of what he speaks, just as he knows the reckless creative temperament that runs through his side of the family. Sammy's own mother, Mitzi, a breathtaking Michelle Williams, gave up a promising career as a concert pianist years ago to help her engineer husband, Bert Paul Dano, beautifully restrained, raise Sammy and his three younger sisters. Bert, heavily in demand from his burgeoning computer industry, keeps his family on the move. Mitzi adapts as best as she can, but she can't hide her resentment and regret over her befalls Sammy, whose passion for movie making is destined to clash with and even eclipse his love for his family. But the Fablemans, uh, perhaps bayoured by its own Spielbergian optimism, takes a gentler, more nuanced view from this conundrum. From the beginning, Sammy's family actively nurtures his movie love, and his parents' distinct perspectives can't help but shape his own way of seeing. Bert, an electrical engineer, explains movies primarily as a mechanical phenomenon and urges his son to never stop pursuing his own. Sammy's sister, for their part, are gleefully gleeful collaborators on his early masterworks of 8mm horror cinema, donning toilet paper, mummy rags, and squirting themselves with ketchup. Before long, the Fablemans moved to Phoenix, providing a welcome change of scenery and an ideal desert backdrop for the ambitious westerns and war pictures that Sammy, now a teenager, and excellent Gabriel LaBelle, makes with his family, friends, and neighbors. His parents' close friend, Bernie, played by a warm, rowdy Seth Rogen, is especially a a good encourager. Filmmaking proves a bustling collaborative endeavor and Sammy already skilled at moving the camera and, and uh, devising ingenious practical effects is every inch the ringmaster a director needs to be. But filmmaking can also be an intensely solitary uh, pursuit and, as Mitzi intuitively grasps, a therapeutic one. By bending fictional reality to his will, she realizes her son is learning to make sense of and exercise control over his deepest fears insecurities, and other unruly emotions. There's a confessional aspect to this revelation, as if Spielberg were conceding some of the accusations of being a consummate emotional manipulator, a purveyor of cheap sentimentality and forced uplift that uh, some of his critics have hurled in his direction. An unreceptive viewer might see the Thalemans as the latest evidence of this artifice, citing perhaps a few stretches of overly broad comedy 
when Sammy finds himself at a Northern California high school or the carefully plotted mystery hiding beneath uh, the surface of what you only thought was a long, shapeless uh, bit, uh, building bit, romance. Watched the movie a second time. I wondered how watching the movie a second time. I wondered how I could have missed the clues, a few of which are planted in Jeannie Berlin's sly performance as Sammy's cantankerous grandmother. They they might also point to the shimmer of Janusz Kaminski's images as the camera glides through scenes of perfectly staged domestic chaos, or the tasteful plinking piano chords of John Williams' score merging seamlessly with Mitzi's own performances of Bach and Beethoven. But to use the exquisite craftsmanship of the Fablemans as an argument against it is, is to cheat yourself of its pleasure, and to miss the point of a movie that functions as a playful pr uh, prismatic meditation of its own making, worldly spectacle, in a context where that spectacle is playing out on a cinema screen. How to quantify the eerie, almost seance-like magic of the moment when Sammy, running footage through his hand-cranked editing machine, is floored by what he sees in the interplay of shooting and cutting, in a wordless lyrical sequence that is itself a masterclass on shooting and cutting. The editing is by Michael Kahn and Sarah Brocher. For a filmmaker to use his command of the medium to dramatize his younger self's command of the medium might have seemed, in other hands, hopelessly self-congratulatory. And it does come close in one near-climactic scene that hinges on Sammy's next-level talent, a moment that doesn't convince ironically because the dialogue has to spell out what the camera and the actors don't make entirely clear. But there's also a humility at work here as well as a deep understanding of human frailty that feels like the opposite of arrogance. The most powerful moments in The Fablemans unfold sans self-consciousness or formal gimmickry, which is fitting, since the most important lesson that Samuel learns about the movies is that uh, while they can spin elaborate lies, they can also tell the truth. His camera can both distort and reveal reality, catching details that the human eye misses and bringing them unsparingly into the light. The most wrenching of those details concerns Mitzi's slide into depression and denial and Williams' performance, one of her many remarkable uh, turns as an artist, from Fosse Verdant to Kelly Richards' upcoming movie Showing Up, is an astonishing, almost unbearable reservoir of emotion, leading with a red lip grin fluttering gestures and a velvety croon in her voice, she gives a big, risky swing of a performance, but also a surprisingly delicate one. When she plays the piano, or in one almost too lovely sequence, dances in the light of a car's high beams, Mitzi seems gloriously lost in the world around her, lost in the art that she loves. But then reality pulls her back, and in the cruel disorientation that follows, you see that the loss is really hers. Bert's practical, sturdy resignation makes him no less poignant a figure, and Dano precisely conveys the struggle of a man whose gentleness com uh, complements but cannot assuage his wife's unquenchable, unquenchable lust for life. And if The Fablemans is a record of the end of a marriage, it's also an attempt at reconciliation between a child and his loving, well-meaning, painfully human parents and also between the twinned legacies that those parents bequeathed him. 
Sammy may be an artist and a dreamer like his mother, but he is no less his father's son. Having inherited Bert's technological vision, Hollywood's forthcoming blockbuster revolution will demand nothing less and more than a little of his steady, calming spirit. Did it all happen this way? Were his parents these people? You might as well ask if Sammy's real-life counterpart uh, really went steady with an overzealous Catholic girl, Chloe East. If he got his nose bloodied by an anti-Semitic jock, Sammy Reckner, or if things played out exactly as they do in the movie's deliriously entertaining finale. Such curiosity is only natural. Even if it plays into an old canard about, and especially movies, inspired by real life, that their accuracy is a direct measure of their truth. Like all great storytellers, Spielberg knows the value, the beauty, of artifice and embellishment, as well as the permeability of truth and fiction. The Fableman's is as uh, slick, transporting, and painstakingly orchestrated as anything in his filmography, and also as funny, stirring, and implacably sad. What makes it personal is that you believe everything in it happened exactly as you see it, as how vivid and enveloping it feels as it's happening in front of you, and how recognizable and bittersweet an ache at it leaves behind. That was Personal Triumph for Spielberg by Justin Chang, film critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 11, 2022. It's called The Fablemans, rated PG-13 for some strong language, thematic elements, brief violence, and drug use. Running time, 2 hours, 31 minutes, playing at the AMC Grove 14, Los Angeles, and AMC Century 15. All right, and here's another one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 11, 2022. Israel fills worthy heir to Meta. Thrusting and parting Lahab Shanae quickly makes his mark in the orchestra. By Mark Swed, music critic. The Israel Philharmonic founded the day after Christmas in 1936 as the Palestine Symphony and the first first conducted by Arturo Toscanini cannot escape history. Becoming a symbol of the new nation after World War II as the Israel Philharmonic Orchestra, it cannot escape politics either, however much of it may try. Controversy follows the Israelis. Because of various boycotted Israeli movements, the orchestra has seen protests and concert disruptions on foreign tours. Saturday night, the Israel Philharmonic, it has now dropped orchestra from its name, performed for the first time at the Soraya as part of the orchestra's first overseas tour since the pandemic. It found itself in what might have seemed a volatile situation. The San Fernando Valley is home to LA's largest Jewish population, which has been rattled by the latest wave of anti-Semitism. The week of the concert, moreover, Israel elected its most overtly anti-Arab government in the nation's history. Even so, there were no protesters Saturday. Nor were there metal detectors or other visible security services, although behind the scenes was evidently different, including the orchestra not allowing, uh, not allowing for security reasons press photographers. The theater was full, the concert went as planned, and was exceptional. Zubin Mehta, who has, ha- who has had a more than half-century relationship with the Israel Philharmonic, stepped down as music director in 2019. He is now emeritus. 
This is the orchestra's first tour with, with its young and electrifying new music director and a former meta-protege, Lahav Shani, and that is news. Shani's program, the first symphonies of Mahler and Paul Ben-Haim, was news as well. Though he devised, though he, he devised months ago, it suddenly responded uh, with somber nuance and sad grace to these latest issues facing both Israel and international anti-Semitism, evermore a reminder of an orchestra tied to history. Both Mahler and Ben Haim, who was the father of Israeli uh, classical music and who followed closely in Mahler's footsteps, envisioned a world of cultural unification. Mahler's first uh, Mahler's first began the composer's uh, mission of making the symphony novelistic, becoming less abstract and more capable of containing a wealth of experience, including music from, from folk and ethnic sources. The first, for instance, radically includes instances of the Jewish music Mahler grew up with in his native Bohemia. Ben Haim was born in Munich in 1897, the year after the premiere of the final version of Mahler's first and the year Mahler, facing anti-Semitism, converted to Catholicism, a requirement to become music director of the Vienna State Opera. In 1920, the young Ben Haim, then Frankenberger, became an assistant to the conductor Bruno Walter, who had been Mahler's assistant. Ben Haim fled Nazi Germany 13 years later and emigrated to the British Mandate of Palestine, where he assumed Hebrew, his Hebrew name. In Palestine, Ben Haim became entranced by extraordinary Yemenite singer Bracha Zephira, who inspired him to find novel ways to incorporate many aspects of the Middle Eastern music from Jewish and Arabic traditions that was all around him into his fairly conventional early 20th century symphonic language. His first symphony, the first symphony to be written in Israel, has moments that surround like rifts on Mahler but with a startling difference. While the Middle Eastern references may not stand out in it, they enrich under the surface, harmony and melody. The surface, though, is rage and anxious suppl uh, supplication. This was a wartime symphony completed in, in 1940, just as the Nazis invaded France and premiered by the composer with the Palestine Symphony. Mahler had, bent, had, a, had a bent for tragedy, and Ben Haim's symphony reveals the worst of what Mahler foretold. It also marshals Mahler's compensatory, loving embrace of life. As for Ben Haim being less sentimental than Mahler, he had to be to he had to be to produce a score of of profound resilience. In the end, though, what cultural influence Ben Haim, who was a critical force in creating a school of Israeli music, may have exerted in Israel has largely disappeared since his death in 1984. He culturally grounded a country of immigrants with the mainly European traditions and with their environment. But Israel has always been a contradiction of cultural conservatism and sweeping modernization, and Ben Haim wrote in a, if not dead, dying musical language of another time and place. Still, a new generation of Israeli musicians such as Shani and conductor Omar Mir Welber have initiated a re revelatory Ben Haim revival. 
Saturday's performance of the 1941 symphony, which began the concert, proved a shattering reminder of the horrors nationalist forces unleashed in the past. Shani, who is 33, is also music director of the of Rotterdam Symphony, conducted without a baton. With open hands, he was expansive in nurturing radiant melody, the orchestra his flock. With fists clenched, he could be viscerally puglistic. The latter is how the symphony begins, with a punch to the gut. The orchestra chose to play on a flat stage at the Soraya. They use risers in their hot in their hall in Tel Aviv, which created a tightly am- amalgamated sound. This became like a single instrument of unstoppable forces, not a collection of individuals. Displaying the frighteningly fast reflexes of, say, a great fencer, Shani exulted in a kind of virtuistic, virtuistic suddenness. It makes music of the moment and of the nanosecond the shock co- coefficient is often high. It must be terrifying to play under, but the immediacy is thrilling. More of the details in Ben Heim's symphony can be heard in the new Dutch gramophone recording of it with Shani and the Israeli Philharmonic. A more refined, expansive, and hopeful approach tempers a beautiful recording that Welber made of the score with the BBC Philharmonic in 2010. Both are necessary, but given our current era of uncertainty, what Shani presented came across with uncanny urgency as an act of resistance, a call for action. The Mahler Symphony that followed did reveal lively details galore, no matter the lack of, of risers. Shani sought drama out of every instance. Individual musicians seemed in their solos like characters in a complex narrative, but blunt, brutal climaxes had but one function, to make your knees shake. Oddly enough, the klezmer-like passages were understated. Triumph at the end, however, was, was how victory should sound. Meta is not an easy act to follow, yet Shani is clearly the right guy, tough and terrific, at the right time and place for this famously ungovernable orchestra. He has the potential to be an inspiration not only for the me- messiness of Israeli society, but for the messy rest of us as well. That was Israel Phil's Worthy Heir to Meta by Mark Swed, music critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, November 11, 2022. Now let's read a little something from this uh, new publication I came across, The L.A. Jewish Home, your favorite bi-weekly family read for November 3rd, 2022, Volume 1, Number 3. So, uh, let's go to... Uh, a section called The Week in News. Global News, the UK's new PM. Rishi Sunak prevailed in a chaotic three-day race for leader of Britain's Conservative Party on Monday, a remarkable political comeback that doubled as a historical milestone, making him the first person of color to become Prime Minister in British history. The 42-year-old son of Indian immigrants, whose political career has already had its ups and downs, Sunak won the contest to replace the short-lived Prime Minister Liz Truss when his only remaining opponent, Penny Mordaunt, withdrew after failing to reach the threshold of 100 nominating votes from conservative lawmakers. Sunak, a former Chancellor of the Exchequer, is expected to pull Britain back to be more mainstream, 
put Britain back to more mainstream policies after a truce's failed experiment in trickle-down economics, which rattled financial markets and badly damaged Britain's fiscal re- uh, reputation. It is also likely to offer a stark contrast to the flamboyance and style and erratic behavior of Boris Johnson, his former boss and truce's discredited predecessor. Butsunak will confront the gravest economic crisis in Britain in a generation, and he will do so at the helm of a badly fractured conservative party. Johnson's decision to pull out of the race Sunday night uh, cleared the path for Sunak, who had challenged Truce last summer but lost to her in a vote of the party's rank-and-file members. It was a head-spinning reversal of fortune for Sunak, whose abrupt resignation from Johnson's cabinet last July set in motion Johnson's downfall and pitched Britain into into upheaval culminating in Truce's brief calamitous stint. Now, he will, be, he will become Britain's third prime minister in seven weeks, the youngest in two centuries and the first person of the Hindu faith to achieve its highest elected office. A former investment banker whose wife is the daughter of an Indian technology billionaire, Sunak will also be one of the wealthiest people to ever occupy number 10 downtown, Downing Street. But if his victory swept away another barrier in British politics, putting Sunak in the same uh, path-breaking category as Margaret Thatcher, Britain's first female prime minister, and Benjamin Disraeli as its only prime minister of Jewish heritage, it also thrust him into, a, into power as a singularly difficult, at a singularly difficult moment. There's no doubt we'll face uh, profound economic challenges, Sunak said in brief, somewhat stiff remarks about his victory. We now need stability and unity and I will make it my utmost priority to bring my party and country together. That was the UK's new PM from the Global News section. Here's from the Israel News section. First Israeli to compete in Saudi Arabia. Olympian triathlete Shakar Sagib is said to be the first Israeli to compete in Saudi Arabia as the countries see progressively thawing relations. Sagib is slated to participate on Saturday in the fifth round of the Super League Triathlon, a team-based cycling, swimming, and running competition. He ranked the fastest cyclist in the most recent competition in Toulouse and was the eighth best competitor overall. Saudi Arabia, which does not generally allow Israelis to enter, has in the past few months begun to issue special visas to Israeli citizens, primarily business people. I am very excited to be a trailblazer by being the first Israeli athlete to compete in Saudi Arabia, Sagib said. Sagib told the website Sport One. This is proof that sports connect people and countries. I hope to have a good competition move, uh, move up in the general ranking in the, at the end of the race and retain first place in the cycling competition, he added. The Animal Super League Triathlon offers winning participants up to 1.5 million dollars with smaller prizes for winners of individual races. Sagib and his brother Ran, Ran broke Israeli records in the 2020 Tokyo Olympics by ranking 20th and 35th in the triathlon competition respectively. They were only the second and third Israeli triathletes ever to participate in the Olympic Games. In November, Shakar Sagib is set to compete in the Bermuda World Triathlon Championship Series as part of his effort to qualify for the 2024 Olympics in Paris. That was first Israeli to compete in Saudi Arabia. 
This is from the Global News uh, section again. Iran arrests 10 Mossad agents. Iranian authorities have arrested 10 agents working for Israel in the province of West Azerbaijan, as Iranian media reported on Monday. A semi-official FARS news agency reported that the individuals carried out operations against Iranian security officials and were in contact with the Mossad intelligence agency. They set fire to cars and homes of people affiliated with the security apparatus and received cash for taking photos which they sent to Mossad agents, the report said. Iran occasionally announces the detonation of uh, the detention of people it says are spying for foreign countries, including the United States and Israel, without providing evidence to back up such claims. Iranian leaders have also recently claimed that popular unrest across the country against the regime's oppression of women is being orchestrated by Israel and the U.S. Two weeks ago, Iran claimed to have apprehended a Zionist spy disguised as a businessman in the southern Kerman province. Prosecutors alleged that the spy had planned to undermine security in Kerman before being caught by members of the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. The suspect also had planned to meet an Israeli agent uh, in a nearby country to be given a new mission, he claimed. In July, Iranian media reported that an alleged Israeli spy network made up of five individuals had been arrested in Iran, the second such group detention announced within a week. That's uh, Iran arrest 10 Mossad agents from the global news section. This is from the national news section. U.S. student scores plummet. Students across the United States are not doing well. According to an authoritative national exam released on Monday, students in most states across almost all demographic groups have experienced troubling setbacks in both math and reading. In math, the results were especially devastating, uh, representing the steepest declines ever recorded on the National Assessment Educational Progress, known as the Na Nation's Report Card, which tests a broad sampling of 4th and 8th graders and dates to the early 1990s. In the test first results since the pandemic began, math scores for 8th graders fell in nearly every state. A meager 26% of 8th graders were proficient, down from 34% in 2019. 4th graders fared only slightly better, with declines in 41 states. Just 36% of 4th graders were proficient in math, down from 41%. Reading scores also declined in more than half of the states, continuing a downward trend that has begun even before the pandemic. No state showed sizable improvement in reading, and only about one in three students met proficiency standards, a designation that means students have demonstrated competency and are on track for future success. I want to be very clear. The results in today's nation's report card are appalling and unacceptable, said Miguel Cardona, the Secretary of Education. This is a moment of truth for education. How we respond to this will determine not only our recovery, but our nation's standing in the world. The exam, which is administered by federal officials and is considered more rigorous than in many a state tests, sampled nearly 450,000 fourth and eighth graders in more than 10,000 schools between January and March. The results are detailed for each state as well as more than two dozen large school districts. Many are pointing to pandemic restrictions as the cause for this bleak result. For example, in Texas, where many schools opened sooner in the pandemic, uh, students' scores held, held steady in reading but showed declines similar to national averages in math. In California, 
which stood out for dragging its feet in reopening schools, scores declined slightly less than the national average in several categories, about in line with Florida, which was a leader in opening schools sooner. That was U.S. student scores plummet. That's from the National News section, and that's from the the Week in News section of the L.A. Jewish Home, your favorite bi-weekly family read for November 3rd, 2022, Volume 1, Number 3. Okay, now let's read some articles from Jewish Journal for November 4th through the 10th, 2022, from the My Turn section, Tucker Carlson's silence on Kanye West is deafening, by Rabbi Shmuley Botich. Kanye West has excelled at everything he's touched, from music to production to fashion to shoes, so it only makes sense that he should excel as an anti-Semite as well. In the space of just four short weeks, Ye, the rapper formerly known as Kanye West, has gone from someone whose views on Jews was ambiguous to the foremost anti-Semite in America. Yes, Kanye, the visionary, always emerges on top. But what's been overlooked is how we all got here. First, it started with what seemed like an innocuous interview on Tucker Carlson's show on Fox News. Only later would we discover that Tucker's producers had edited out some anti-Semitic trash that Ye had uttered on the show. Why was that? You can't argue it's because they found his words disgusting because they should have uh, scuttled the entire interview. Fox News is a pro-Israel network. Surely they're not going to be in league with a lunatic anti-Semite. But no explanation was ever uh, offered as to why Tucker did not disclose that in his celebrated interview with Ye, the rapper, and let's not forget Visionary, went off the rails about how much he hates Jews. Even more curious is the fact that Tucker has been so utterly silent on Ye's Jew-hating formations. One would expect that as they all started on his show, he'd be the first to condemn them. The Jewish community has a right to expect that the most highly rated cable show in America would hold Ye to account, so why has Tucker been silent? Even if it meant bringing Ye back on his show to ask about his anti-Semitic comments, as Chris Cuomo did, that would be enough. But to give Ye the original platform from which he spewed his anti-Semitism and then go completely silent is not something in keeping with Tucker's claim of fairness and support for Jewry and Israel. There was a time I was impressed when Ye and his wife at the time Kim Kardashian took both their babies to, the, to be baptized at an Armenian church in Jerusalem's old city and that Kim was involved in Armenian genocide memory. I was also impressed that Ye seemed to be the kind of celebrity who swarmed against the, main, uh, the stream and uh, wanted to be his own man. Authenticity counts. But is there any virtue in being an authentic anti-Semite? Once you go down the road of being a dyed-in-the-wool anti-Semite, you have lost all virtue. You're a hater, and you deserve to be condemned. Yet, Ye's disgusting attacks on Jews of wanting to go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people, and saying he can't be anti-Semitic because black people are actually Jew also, thereby even denying Jews an intrinsic existence, would not matter much matter except for what it reveals about how few allies we Jews have in combating anti-Semitism. Jews control the world, the media, the banks. Are you kidding me? We can't even get pro-Israel Fox News and Tucker Carlson to condemn anti-Semitism. What would the African-American community have done 
had a white celebrity said that they're going to go, going nuclear against blacks on Fox News. My guess is they would not stand for it. Is it possible that one of the reasons that many in the Jewish community dislike Black Lives Matter is jealousy? Black Lives Matter has exposed the power of the black community and the weakness of the Jewish community. Today in America, you can falsely accuse Jews in Israel of genocide like Bella Hadid and get rewarded by Swarovski with millions of dollars, even as that disgusting company continues to hide their Nazi past. You can spew hatred of Jews in Israel to your millions of Instagram followers every day, like your sister Gigi Hadid, and be rewarded with being on the cover of Vogue more than 35 times. The fault of Jew hatred falls, the, uh, falls directly on the shoulders of the anti-Semites, but that doesn't mean that we should that that doesn't mean that we in the Jewish community should tolerate it. Tolerating in tolerating the intolerable is the liberalism of fools. You can be the president of Turkey, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, and call Jews Hitler, Nazis, murderers, baby killers for 10 years. You can, like Erdogan, vilify and demonize Jews from your globally, global bully pulpit. And then as soon as you, in this case Erdogan, back the wrong horse on the world stage, Putin and his war on Ukraine, and need a deal with Israel to whitewash your brutal reputation, you can just come running back. Yes, I've said it, Israel is more brutal than even Hitler, but hey, let's now exchange ambassadors. And Israel will embrace you with open arms. No apology for calling us Nazis, not even as Erdogan demanded and received an apology from Israel for the Mavi Marmara episode. But the test of Jewish influence is our ability to demand of a friend like Tucker Carlson that if your show starts the ball rolling, on Ye's anti-Semitism that you should be the first to condemn it. Ye's comments about Jews were inexplicably defended by some, including Candace Owens. West, who has 32 million social media followers, continued his rant against Jews by saying, you guys have toyed with me and I tried to, uh, and tried to blackball anyone who opposes your agenda. Has someone been reading the protocols of the elders of Zion? His comments follow followed Instagram banning him from an intim from intimidating rapper Diddy in control uh, for imitating rapper Diddy is controlled by Jewish people. West and his defenders don't get to define anti-Semitism. Anyone threatening to go nuclear against Jews has engaged in anti-Semitism. Owens tried to rationalize his remarks, questioning whether DEFCON 3 was meant as a threat and reference to the military alert level DEFCON it's like you cannot, cannot even say the word Jewish without people getting upset, she said. These were not West's only anti-Semitic comments, but they were enough to get him locked out of Twitter and provoked criticism from fellow celebrities like Sarah Silverman and Jamie Lee Curtis, whose father was Jewish. Silverman seemed to be calling out her fellow liberals when she tweeted, Kanye threatened the Jews yesterday on Twitter, and it's not even trending. Why do mostly only Jewish people speak up against Jewish hate? The silence is so loud. Similarly, Curtis tweeted, The holiest day in Judaism was last week. Words matter. A threat to Jewish people ended once in a genocide. Your words hurt and incite violence. You are a father. Please stop. Conservatives should be held to the same standard. I am not an advocate of canceling people for making controversial statements, but they deserve to be condemned when they cross a line to a, 
uh, into expressions of hatred directed at others. But even then, I believe people still have an opportunity for redemption. Curtis alluded to the fact that Jews just observed the holiday of Yom Kippur. This is the day when we atone for the sins of the past year. According to Moses Maimonides, the greatest rabbis since the original Moses, Moses atonement means uh, atonement requires four steps. First, a recognition of the sin. Second, a confession of the sin. Third, an apology to the injured party and a request for forgiveness. And fourth, restitution. Undertaking concrete action that demonstrates that one is charting a new course. These, there exists the possibility that ye actually repents and goes through all four Maimonides' uh, stage. We know that people will, with some of the vilest beliefs can change. For example, there are former Klansmen who have renounced their previous white supremacist views. But until he does so, Tucker Carlson and all those who have given him a platform to spew his Jew hatred should be, condemned, should be condemning him in the strongest possible terms. There was Tucker Carlson's silence and Kanye West is deafening by Rabbi Shmuley Botich from the My Turn section. Rabbi Shmuley Botich, America's rabbi, whom the Washington Post calls the most famous rabbi in America, is the author of Holocaust Holiday, One Family's Descent into Genocide Memory Hell. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Rabbi Shmuley. Here's something also from the My Turn section. Pro-Israel Activists Push Back in London and North Carolina by Catherine Wolfe. The Israelis just showed up. It was captured on a video not even a minute long, recently posted to Twitter. An anti-Israel crowd in central London, someone yelling, murderers, are, confront, uh, are confronted by two Israeli women uh, who step into the fray and win. The clip electrified pro-Israel activists, ever outnumbered and often drowned out. Within days, it racked up nearly 11,000 views, a huge hit in the tiny world of Zionist activism. The women were Ortal Armar and Danit Greenberg, TV personalities and influencers in Israel, who reportedly encountered the event in front of the Puma shop by chance on pedestrian Carnaby Street. For about an hour, they joined several pro-Israel counter-protesters holding Israeli flags and a bullhorn. Protests against Puma are routine in the United Kingdom as the company sponsors the Israel Football Association. In the video, Amar belts out an encomium of Israel and censor of Gaza. Israel is the only democracy in the Middle East that has LGBT rights, human rights, children's rights, free education. She continues in a lilting Hebrew accent, if you are a gay person in Gaza, and here Greenberg steps forward to shout in unison with Amar, you will die. Amar continues, if you are a woman that doesn't dress modestly in Gaza, and again, together they yell, you will die. The effectiveness of the approach, informative, gutsy, soulful, and seemingly cathartic, is tangible. With signs drooping most uh, most protesters in the short clip appear merely to stare at the Israelis. One rolls up a banner. One rolls up a banner. Others dispense. The Israelis show no signs of relenting, even when a police officer orders them to keep clear of the Puma entrance. They were absolutely brilliant," said Gary Benjamin, an organizer of the counter-protest who uploaded photos of the Israelis to his Twitter account at Tattooed Zionist. 
The pals packed up and went home early in the end. They really couldn't take it anymore. Marina Greenberg, no relation, the Londoner who first posted the video under Twitter handle at Blue Greenberg wrote, they got told by Israelis who know the truth. More typical is in the boycott, divestment, and uh, sanctions team is what happened a few days earlier in front of Google offices in Durham, North Carolina, among other cities. About 50 anti-Israel protesters amassed, some with signs that read, Israel is apartheid. Speaking into a megaphone, one woman said with great feeling that being an indigenous person drove her support for Palestinians. Another man of Middle Eastern descent led the chant, Free, Free Palestine, and anger distorted in his face. With signs provided by the grassroots activism organization End Jew Hatred, about eight Israeli supporters attempted to provide a counter-narrative. I was one of them. Alexandra Andut, the courageous co-president of the Students Supporting Israel Club at near my university, approached a boycott proponent holding a sign that said, Apartheid. Excuse me, sir, said Andut. There is no apartheid. We have Arabs in the Knesset, on the Supreme Court, in hospitals everywhere. He snickered. It's apartheid. You keep people apart. That's apartheid. Rallies, rallies with two opposing camps can get tense. Cheryl Dorchinsky, founder and executive director of the Atlanta-Israel Coalition, has participated in dozens of pro-Israel events over the years. BDS advocates have, have, advocates have at times become physically threatening, she said, giving many Israel supporters pause about participating. Because of that hate, that's just a reality, Dorchinsky said. You come face to face with it. For the most part, Google employees tried to skirt the hullabaloo. A few for Israel signs were illegible among the many BDS signs in some photos run by lo the local press in South Africa. Emmett Blass was interviewed about why Israel was not apartheid. From that standpoint, we called it a win. But the Israelis demonstrated a winning that seemed altogether different. At one point, an anti-Israel demonstrator sidled up to the, uh, to the women. Greenberg points and shouts, go away, go away, go away. The only democracy country, the only one, shame on you, shame on you for telling lies. He does go away, a thin forced smile on his lips. What they are doing is absolutely beautiful, Dorchinsky said after I sent her the video. They know better than anyone Israel's uh, their home. That was pro-Israel activists pushed back in London and North Carolina by Catherine Wolfe from the My Turn section. Catherine Wolfe is a journalist in Durham, North Carolina, where she lives with her husband and two daughters. Okay, and again from the My Turn section, betrayed by Ye, Kanye West goes from artistic inspiration to purveyor of anti-Semitism by Adar Rubin. As teenagers, my peers and I were taught the importance of personal branding by Kanye West, now Ye. His music sparked a community-wide appreciation for self-investment through fashion. Who can forget those iconic bar mitzvah shutter shade giveaways? To own a pair of the original Nike Air Yeezys defined a, a kid as the coolest on the block, and we were eager to do anything to get our hands on them. His music was the birth of his own hype beast culture a community-wide appreciation for self-investment through fashion. The music served as a healing source of emotional comfort for this formerly young Jewish teenager who went through his parents' divorce scared of and pessimistic about rapid life-altering change. 
we learn general business skills as well as the importance of fiscal responsibility through the street uh, streetwear market. We would hang out at any sneaker convention or co consignment shop uh, we could find in order to be a part of the environment. Kanye made a lot of that possible. But recently he betrayed the Jewish community he helped motivate. After reading his horrific anti-Semitic remarks on social media, especially the words death come three on Jewish people, I felt a real sense of painful disillusionment, fear, and above all, rage. His follow-up insinuation that Jewish people are behind the curtains of cancel culture was appalling. And despite its definition as a variant of the media control trope, Twitter did not remove the statement. I am now 27, working in bipartisan Israel advocacy and devoting my career to researching extremism, combating anti-Semitism, diplomacy, and the provision of opportunities for broader communities to connect with Israeli innovation. I have also worked in partisan politics, enough to know that regardless of which party you support, we should all feel livid that former President Trump defended Kanye no less within 48 hours of a suggestion that American Jews should get their act together before it's too late. Years in the partisan realm, realm nearly took a dangerous toll on my own mental health as I watched several of my relationships and friendships collapse. Trump is still selfishly aggrieved he did not receive the majority Jewish vote in 2020 despite his boast of doing more for Israel than any other president. Speaking of partisanship, Kanye is not the only one who has betrayed the Jewish community. Candace Owens' uh, pr protection campaign of Kanye is the coup de grace for her already desecrated reputation. Her hostile social media attacks targeting pro-Israel uh, pro pundits, followed by her TPUSA-sponsored appearance last week at Michigan State University, serves as her middle finger to every Jewish student on campus. I, we began to see a familiar pattern of how anti-Semitic endorsements manifest themselves when over the weekend, a white supremacist group known as the Goyim Defense League placed signs over a Los Angeles freeway that said Kanye was right about the Jews. It would be easy to ignore were it not for the fact that an, an alarmingly large number of people honked in support of them. The Goyim Defense League is known mostly for dropping leaflets filled with anti-Semitic screeds in neighborhoods during the dead of the night. They recently had a presence at the University of Michigan on Rosh Hashanah. Their tactics are cowardly, but Kanye made his mainstream as he loudly boosts the, uh, the comments he has already doubled down on. But the end result is no less corrosive or ripe for condemnation. Kanye, a man who already is invoking, who is already invoking black Hebrew-Israeli troops, is now an ideological matrimony, matrimony with white supremacy. I spoke to several interfaith partners, candidates, and elected officials in Michigan from both sides of the political aisle who have expressed their disgust with Kanye's rhetoric against Jews. The twisted reality is that we, as a Jewish community, have no choice but to accept that people like Kanye, people who we once idolized, are easily capable of substituting virtue for violence. The expansion of our digital ecosystem only amplifies our fears and misinformation is always poised to spread faster than you can tweet or TikTok. Former role models like Kanye can succumb to this cancerous desire of selfish opportunism and influence rather than provide empathy and inspiration to communities. Kanye West may have failed my community, 
but we will continue to speak our th- uh, speak out through our own counterculture, a prescription of love and creative expression through our Jewish experience. That was betrayed by Ye, Kanye West goes from artistic inspiration to purveyor of anti-Semitism by Adar Rubin from the My Turn section. Adar Rubin is the Israel Associate at the Jewish Community Relations Council. All right, let's turn to the Nation World Briefs section. And we start off with this one. Black Jewish Justice Alliance Condemns Kanye 405 Banners by Aaron Bandler. The Black Jewish Justice Alliance issued a statement on October 27th condemning recent comments from rapper Kanye West in the banners held by a white supremacist group on the 405 freeway on October 22nd. The banners that stated that, uh, stated that uh, Kanye was right about the Jews and the perpetrators were seen doing Nazi salutes. We believe that what occurred on the 405 freeway on Sunday, 10-23-22, in Los Angeles is disgusting and is unfortunately evidence of a growing trend of overt anti-Semitic and racist incidents and messages taking place in Los Angeles and nationally, the BJJA statement read. They added that because Kanye West has such a large platform and can influence so much people, he must be held accountable for emboldening white supremacy. West's recent statements are fanning the embers of hatred, a hatred stirred up by the former president and reflecting a rising white nationalist sentiment across the country. There are currently more than 70 signatories to the statement, including Rabbi Arya Cohen of Ben the Ark, Jewish Action, and Rabbi Sharon Brous of IKAR. That was Black Jewish Justice Alliance Condemns Kanye West 405 Banners by Aaron Bandler. This next one is Man Who Allegedly attacked Nancy Pelosi's husband, had spread conspiracy theories about Jews, by Ron Campius, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. The man arrested for beating U.S. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi's Democrat of California husband with a hammer after breaking into their San Francisco home in search of her had spread the theory online that Jews are to blame for the war in Ukraine. San Francisco police arrested David DePap on Friday after Paul Pelosi struggled with a home invader was attacking him. DePap was allegedly yelling, where is Nancy? Nancy Pelosi was in Washington, D.C. at the time of the attack. Paul Pelosi, 82, was hospitalized but is expected to recover. One of two websites DePap apparently administered includes a category entitled Da Jubes, devoted to anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, including Holocaust denial. Numerous recent entries accuse Jews of being behind Russia's war against Ukraine as a means of buying up the land. That's some pretty sick Jewish going on, if true, read a post from Monday featuring an anti-Semitic caricature of a Jew. Bomb the country into shit so the residents leave. Buy the land up for cheap. A post on Tuesday said, the more Ukrainians die needlessly, the cheapest the cheaper the land will be for Jews to buy up. DePape's Facebook page is no longer is no longer be accessible, but CNN reported that it was replete with posts embracing the election denial lie peddled by Trump and his supporters, as well as transphobic content and unfounded theories about the coronavirus uh, vaccines. The network also spoke to people who knew DePape, including members family members who said that he was disconnected from reality and from his family. 
that was man who allegedly attacked Nancy Pelosi's husband had spread conspiracy theories about Jews by Ron Campius, Jewish Telegraphic Agency. This last one is NBA star Kyrie Irving defense posting link to anti-Semitic film by Aaron Bandler. Brooklyn Nets star point guard Kyrie Irving defended his social media post linking to an anti-Semitic film during a post-game press conference on the evening of October 29. In a since-deleted tweet, Irving had linked up to the move linked to the movie Hebrews to Negroes Wake Up Black America. The movie, based on a book of the same name, is filled with hashtag anti-Semitic themes, including those promoted by Dangerous Sex of the Black Hebrew Israelites movement. Anti-Defamation League CEO Jonathan Greenblatt tweeted. Irving defended his post as simply linking to someone on a public platform and that it had to do with him living as a free black man here in America, knowing the historical complexities for me to get here. Nets owner Joe Tsai tweeted the previous, uh, the previous evening, I'm disappointed that Kyrie appears to support a film based on a book full of anti-Semitic disinformation. I want to sit down and make sure he understands this is harmful to all of us. And as a man of faith, it is wrong to promote hate based on race, ethnicity, or religion. That was NBA star Kyrie Irving defense posting link to anti-Semitic film by Aaron Bandler. And those are all from the Nation World Briefs section. Okay, let's go to the Table for Five Weekly Parsha 1 verse 5 Voices section, edited by Salvador Litvak, the Accidental Talmudist. Lech Lecha. And God said to Abraham, Your wife Sari, you shall not call her name Sari, for Sarah is her name, and I will bless her. I will give you a son by her. I will bless her so that she shall give rise to nations. Rulers of peoples shall issue from her. Uh, gener- generation 17, 15 to 16. Rabbi Cantor Eva Robbins, co-rabbi Nevi Shalom and faculty AJRCA. Sari was Avram's wife and partner as they both left behind left the land uh, as they both left the land of their birth, family, and culture. They were mavericks, risk takers, and embodied Avram's identification as an Ivory or Ivory, one who crosses borders slash boundaries. But only Sari has a Yud as a part of her name, which is a masculine marker, a prefix for a future tense uh, when referring to he and the first letter of God's omnipotent name. You hate, Midrash teaches that Sari took the Yud, which represents the number 10, and divided it into two, representing two letters, the He, number 5, using one to change Avram to Avraham, and the, others, and the other for herself becoming Sarah. The letter He is the female marker, so they both attain the feminine aspect of the divine, Shekhinah as well as an essential part of God's name and character. They have proved to be faithful and devoted servants of the Holy One, and we carry an essential part of the divine as part of their identity and mission. What is even more remarkable, Midrash suggests, is that Sarah, who became an ambassador for the new and unique religion of the one hidden God, unlike the idols that were ever-present in the ancient world, took the Yud, which was, which was once part of her original name and bequeathed it to Joshua. Once called Hosea, he becomes Yehoshua and bearing the divine within him as he enters and conquers the land, fulfilling God's promise 
she shall give rise to nations. A name is a powerful thing. Rabbi Abraham Greenstein, AJRC, a professor of Hebrew. Although the exact derivation and meaning of the name uh, Sari is not entirely clear, the most obvious translation is my nobleman. In contrast, the meaning of Sarah is somewhat less puzzling and someone and somewhat more fitting. Sarah means noble woman. The Gemara Beracha 13a asserts that the shift from the name Sari to Sarah represents a shift in Sarah's status as a matriarch. She is no longer a noble figure and leader to only her own people. She has now become a noble leader to the entire world. Rashi clarifies that use of the possessive my and Sari is an indication of particularism, whereas the name Sarah, noblewoman, is more universal. Although the same line, along the same lines, it may be said that the seeming shift from the plural nobleman to the singular noblewoman can indicate Sarah's role as a unifier rather than as one who promotes the numerous distinctions that divide people. Indeed, Sarah is Abraham's uh, partner in spreading monotheism and in uniting the world through this belief. The seeming shift from masculine nobleman to feminine, feminine noblewoman likewise suggests that Sarah was coming into her own as a woman, a mother to Isaac and matriarch to all of humanity. Sarah's name change reflects her legacy. Sarah reminds us that we too can become noble leaders uh, when we seek unity in preference to division and when we overlook possession in favor of giving. Sarah puts forward the role of Jewish femininity as a model of Jewish devotion and as a productive of affirmation of God's oneness. David Brandis, Screenwriter Producer A child's Hebrew name is more than just a random act chosen of choice by the parents. According to the Kabbalah, when a child is born, a spirit of prophecy, so to speak, uh, comes, over, comes over the parent, parents and this spirit unconsciously directs them to the name that they will choose. A name is in some mystical way connected to the essential spirit of the child. It will define the child throughout his or her life. Both Sari and Sarah mean princess. However, as Rashi explains, the name Sari refers to the individual or personal princess while Sarah transcends the personal into a princess for others. By adding the H, a repeated letter in the YKFK holy name of God, God is setting Sarah on a new, grander trajectory. It redefines Sarah by imbuing her with God's divine breath. It announces her newly anointed role of matriarch of nations. This new name is a gift from God as well as a responsibility. Rabbi Elliot Dorf, American Jewish University. This is the first of many verses in the Bible that see children as a blessing. Children are our link to generations past and future, a way for parents to give further longevity to their own parents and at the same time live beyond their own lives. That's also the way that the Jewish people and our tradition live on from one generation to those following. Children bring great joy to the people who are able to have children when they want them and conversely, great, dis uh, great distress to those like uh, Abram and Sarah to this point were not able to procreate. The commandment to procreate in Genesis 1 applies logically and morally only to those who can have children naturally. Couples certainly may use artificial reproductive techniques to try to have children, 
but Jewish law does not require them to do so. Adoption is also an honor uh, uh, open is also an honored option in our tradition. We in the Jewish community must support infertile couples in every way we can. The Jewish community is in deep demographic crisis. We are not even reproduce, reproducing ourselves, let alone regaining the six million we lost in the Holocaust. Jews uh, who, who can have children are strongly encouraged to do so, and older Jews, including parent, grandparents, if possible, should help make it economically possible. Ways to achieve this include providing financial support for the Jewish education of children, informally in camps and youth groups, and formally in schools. Leah Saul, author of Sisterhood of the Copper Mirrors, founder cmgteam.org. Miracles are going to happen. Change your name, change your fortune. In this case, Sarah's name changes, cha Sarah's name change gives her mission uh, even more power. The commentator suggests Sarah has become something more. She's going from Sari, literally my princess, to Sarah, the nation's princess. And we're not talking Disney princess. She was a real woman with real challenges to overcome, a true leader in her own right. She didn't play a minor passive or submissive role. Named directly by God, we see a key player, Sarah, who gave rise to nations and rules, rulers of peoples, Sarah, our matriarch. What kind of thoughts went through the mind of, of Abraham and Sarah? The thoughts of parents at the time of conception influenced the soul to be born. What did they need to do to prepare for this kind of responsibility? This was not just you're going to have a baby after all this time of barrenness. barrenness. This is massive. It's life-changing and even more so world-changing. So how is the, this relevant and what is the metaphor for us? As the descendants of such a matriarch, how do we take this to a personal level? What in your life can go from barren to fertile right now? What are the thoughts you're thinking to conceive your next step? What are the changes you can make with, and how will you take the responsibility for the gift and blessing of each new day? More miracles are going to happen. That was Table for Five Weekly Parsha, One Verse, Five Voices, by, edited by Salvador Litvak, the Accidental Talmudist, and it was Lech Lecha, Genesis 7, 17, 15-16. Alright, here's something from a uh, a section they call Campus Watch, and this is by Aaron Bandler. Representative Brad Sherman denounces Berkeley Law Students Group's bylaws barring Zionist speakers. Representative Brad Sherman, Democrat of Sherman Oaks, denounced the student groups at Berkeley Law School that passed bylaws saying that they would never invite Zionist speakers to campus. In an October 31st statement, Sherman said that these bylaws would prevent figures such as President Biden or Berkeley Law's own Dean Erwin Shemarinsky from speaking at these events simply because they believe that Israel has a right to exist. For too long, we have given anti-Semitism a pass when its proponents label it as anti-Zionism, he said. Kanye is right about the Jews appears during Florida-Georgia game. The message Kanye is right about the Jews was displayed outside of the stadium of the University of Florida University uh, of Georgia game on October 29. A video of the message shows the words scrolling to the left on the outside wall of TIAA Bank Field in Jacksonville, Florida, where the Jacksonville Jaguars play. It is not yet known how the message was able to be projected onto the stadium. Both universities condemned the message as anti-Semitic hate speech. 
Gas the effing Jews, note found at Brown R.I.S.D. Hillel. An unsigned note calling for Jews to be gassed and other anti-Semitic tropes was found at the Brown Rhode Island School of Design Hillel on the evening of October 30. The note, found on the back of a donation card, read in full, I would never give the rich stuck up entitled Jews any money. F you all. Hail Hitler. Gas the effing Jews and hope you die. The matter is currently under investigation. Brooklyn Yeshiva students attacked with eggs punched amidst shouts of Free Palestine. Three Jewish students were attacked with eggs just outside of a Brooklyn Yeshiva while one of the perpetrators shouted Free Palestine. The Al Jamina reported that there were five perpetrators in total and that it was the second time in 2022 that an incident of this kind has occurred. The students are all teenagers. New York City Council member Kalman Yeager tweeted that the environment in which the incident happens is one where criminals know there are no consequences for crime in New York, particularly hate crimes and particularly against the Jews. UW Madison condemns man in Hitler costume. The University of Wisconsin Madison issued a statement on October 20 condemning a man who was wearing a costume of Adolf Hitler. A man was seen by students walking along State Street off campus. He is not believed to be in any way affiliated with the university. University spokesperson John Lucas said in a statement that UW-Madison stands against anti-Semitism and all forms of bigotry and discrimination. Man arrested for allegedly posting white supremacist stickers at University of Albany. A 24-year-old man was arrested after allegedly posting white supremacist stickers in the University of Albany quad. The stickers, according to News 10, have messages saying, Resist Zionism, our blood is our faith, our race is our nation, and blood and soil. One of the signs defaced a residence hall sign. The man, identified as Alexander Wolcott, faces one felony charge of aggravated harassment. He is not affiliated with the university per WYN, WNYT. Five, this is five Ethica College swastika incidents this year, but no suspects yet. The Ithacon, a student newspaper at Ithaca College, ran a piece on October 26 on how there have been five swastikas found on campus since January, and so far the investigations into them have come up empty. The paper zeroed in on the most recent incident, a swastika that was scratched on the door of an elevator in a residence hall. There aren't any cameras nearby the elevator, and there weren't any cameras in any of the areas where the other four swastikas were found. Various students told the Ithacan that more surveillance is needed on campus. UVM president says anti-Semitism will not be tolerated. University of Vermont president Suresh Garamella issued a statement on October 28 denouncing anti-Semitism on campus after the Department of Education's Office of Civic Rights announced in the previous month that they would be investigating the university's handling of anti-Semitic incidents on campus. Garamella said in a statement, I want my message to be clear to the entire campus community. Anti-Semitism in any form will not be tolerated at UVM. Conduct that targets and threatens Jewish individuals or groups or that unreasonably interferes with their ability to participate in UVM po uh, programs and activities is unacceptable. And that's Campus Watch by Aaron Bandler. Here's something from the community section.
Dr. Afshin Emrani on medical freedom of speech and his Iranian roots by Kylie Aura Lobel. During the darkest days of the pandemic, Dr. Afshin Emrani's social media posts were showing up all over news feeds, Twitter timelines, and WhatsApp groups. He discussed his opinions on COVID, which were sometimes controversial, but he always kept an open mind and welcomed the criticism. I received a lot of pushback from multiple sources, including colleagues whom I respect, said Emrani, a cardiologist in Tarzana. Most of the discussions were respectful. If people disagree with each other in a respectful manner and present their data, I respect them. That's how societies function. That's how we learn from each other. If you're in an echo chamber, you don't grow and learn. Emrani experienced firsthand the cost of not being able to speak his mind. He was born in Iran, and his father was in charge of the country's coal mining industry, its second largest after oil. His father helped build cities, schools, roads, hospitals, and theaters. But when the Iranian Revolution hit in 1978, suddenly he feared for his life. The tide changed both because he was a Jew and because he was working for the Shah, said Emrani. My father was rushing to save what money he had made in 30-plus years of service to his country and get his wife, mother, and four little boys out of a war zone. Bullets were flying over our house, and people were rioting in the front, uh, setting cars on fire on our streets. In the summer of 1979, the Amrani family was able to flee. My father got rid of everything we had, and we escaped, said Amrani. Uh, we, were a, we were some of the lucky ones. The Amranis lived in England for about three years and then came to Los Angeles to be among other Iranian Jews, but it was a rough transition. People were making fun of me, this Persian Jew who sounded British, Amrani said. In England, uh, we would dress in suits at our, as our school uniform, and when I came here, I showed up in, to uni high in a suit. I was promptly told not to do that again. The school placed Amrani in AP Biology and Math, which was fitting because he always wanted to be a doctor. When he was a child, he dissected non-edible non parts of the meat his mother would bring home from the butcher shop. I would try to figure out how it all worked, he said. I had this fascination to try and help people get better. I thought there was no better reward in life than to help people, and I still feel that way. Amrani attended the University of, San of California, San Diego, and worked at Cedars-Sinai, Medical Center as well as Kaiser Permanente before opening his own practice, Los Angeles Heart Specialists. In his everyday work, he sees that uh, one of the biggest public health threats is loneliness, especially among the elderly. Many elderly people come to my office once a month and believe it or not, that's the only human interaction they have, he said. Some of the families don't visit or they don't go out. That contributes to dementia and heart disease and many other problems. The doctor also sees processed food and inactivity causing a number of issues. In our society, people live off the of a processed food, not off the land, he said. They'll eat whatever is quick and in a wrapper or in a box. Most people are behind most people are behind their computer all day and they don't move. Between not moving and eating processed foods, they're becoming obese and suffering from heart disease. Though the pandemic is not making headlines any, uh, as much anymore, Amrani is still speaking about it. For two years, we had lockdowns that were really disastrous, he said. Many people didn't get their proper follow-ups or go in for routine exams. 
there was a lack of access to health care and increased loneliness and anxiety. And there was worsening obesity, drinking, smoking, and mental health problems. On top of everything, Imran has said that the delaying of health care led to a rush back once the, the pandemic receded. Many doctors are giving appointments three to six months out, he said. This further exacerbates the problem. Many doctors end up re ended up retiring during COVID because they were burned out and left many patients without care. And Ronnie has been outspoken not just about COVID, but also about Assembly Bill 2098, a bill that Governor Gavin Newsom signed that targets doctors who spread COVID misinformation. Having escaped from Iran, where, where human expression was censored, the bill brings back my PTSD, he said. Science is based on opposition and questioning. He continued, Many things labeled as misinformation over the past two years ended up being correct. For science to function, we need people to ask questions that are the direct opposite of the main narrative. Without it, we have a failure of science. Like other Persian Jews, uh, Imrani is deeply Zionist and passionate about defending Israel. Recently, he tweeted to his over 50,000 followers, I'm a proud Zionist Jew. If you have a problem with that, you're a racist bigot. If you're cool with it, I love you. Everything that I do is based on my Jewish beliefs, he said. I've always taken care of everybody, regardless of color or creed or religion. I always welcome everyone to come to my practice, and they are very comfortable because they feel my love towards them. I want them to know that my Judaism dictates that I take care of them just like God wants. Simply put, Amrani is living his dream, which is to be of service. My goal is to be a good Jew and help people, he said. As we say, saving one life is like saving the entire world. That was Dr. Afshin Amrani on medical freedom, um, on medical freedom of speech and his Iranian roots by Kylie Ora Lobel from the community section. Okay, here's something else from the community section. How an ultimate optimist outlived his would-be killers by Ari L. Noonan. On November 20, Joe Alexander celebrates his 100th birthday. The active West Hollywood resident who was born in Kowal, a small town near central, in central Poland, can claim membership in one of the world's tiniest clubs. After six years as a prisoner of one of the most evil schemes of the 20th century, not only did this hero of the Holocaust survive 12 concentration camps, he also gained revenge on his captors by probably outliving all of them. At one of his recent talks at the Holocaust Museum, Los Angeles, the 99-year-old survivor related his harrowing journey through the most perilous death camps in the, the Nazis could devise. Dressed fashionably in a black and white sport coat, black shirt and necktie, the diminutive Alexander took his seat at the front door of the room. After his opening words, he never paused. He was known in the camps and has been known since 1949 in the United States as an optimist. The second youngest of six children, he credits being raised in a modern orthodox home for his permanent sunny outlook. Alexander was known in the camps for his optimism and still strong faith in God. He said his belief in doing what God wants carried him through. Today, he is known for assuring audiences, especially students, that no matter how grim things are, they will get better. That belief, which I learned at home, 
kept me going in the camps, Alexander said. Unlike most men and women of his age, Alexander is, a regular, is regularly active, alert, and participates in da daily in society, and not from a distance. He is the he is the Gabai at Hollywood Temple Beth El for his longtime friend, Rabbi Norbert Weinberg. He attends every Shabbat service, removing the Torah from the Ark and arranging the Aliyot recipients. On January 8th, Beth El is planning a double-header gala celebrating two 100th birthdays, Alexander's and the Conservative Synagogues. One of Weinberg's favorite stories about Alexander is how his friend's knee was shattered in a motorcycle accident shortly after the war ended. He ignored the pain for seven years before he decided to fix it, the rabbi said. Shortly after the surgery, he was up and around again. While Alexander remains familiar with many intimate uh, details from 1939 until May of 1945, being around this tireless man, it is easy to forget he is a hundred. For the past 25 years, since the lifelong Taylor retired from his military uniform shop, L.A. Uniform Exchange, on Melrose Avenue, Alexander carefully has been recounting his thousands of steps through death camps for appreciative audiences of students and adults. No matter his optimism, he has faced more than his share of challenges. After the early days of the Holocaust, he never again saw or learned what happened to his parents and siblings. In 1995, two years before Alexander's retirement, his wife Adele, who he met and met in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, his first stop in the States, died. He used to deliver multiple talks a day, and now in the aftermath of the pandemic, Alexander relates his concentration camp experiences twice a week at the Holocaust Museum. Making no obvious concessions to age, his fact-filled presentations are emotion-free. I survived 12 camps, he said. I grew up in Kowal, Poland. My father was in business, and we had a very good life until 1939. That was when the Germans came into Poland and divided the country into two halves. We lived in the part that was, in, was annexed to the Third Reich. Every town had a town square where the, businesses, uh, where the businesses were. We lived in the town squares. We were given ten minutes to get out. Mysteriously, Three families, including the Alexanders, were overlooked. After the victims departed, Joe's father put the seven Alexanders into two horse-drawn wagons and they headed for a town 15 miles away where relatives lived. Within two weeks, though, 17-year-old Joe was sent to a forced labor camp. Everybody had to work there, he said. They told us on weekends we could go home, but we were building a canal. You stayed in the water, up to your knees, without boots. We arrived around this time of year, October, November, like wintertime. I worked there a few weeks, got blood poisoning, scores on my, uh, sc uh, sores on my legs and arms. One weekend I went home. I said, I'm not going back. Monday morning, the police came to look for me. My dad said, he's not here. He's supposed to be at the camp. They left, and uh, I stayed away from home for a while. That was when uh, they were starting to build a wall where the Warsaw Ghetto was going to be. After the wall was finished, they announced that all Jews within 50-60 kilometers had to move into the Warsaw Ghetto. We moved into the ghetto, and you cannot imagine how miserable life was. This was a small, walled-in area with barbed wire on top. 
They put about 400,000 people in there. People were dying every day. We went out in the morning and there were dead people on the sidewalks, in the streets, everywhere. The Nazi inked identification number 142584 remains tattooed on his forearm. Uh, Alexander, helped, uh, Alexander kept moving uh, camp to camp, laying cobblestones, building sewers, laying down railroad tracks. He mentioned going three days at a time without food or facilities. Eventually, in early 1943, he wound up at the notorious Auschwitz-Birkenau, his eighth stop. When the train doors were opened, he recalled 30 to 40 percent of the people were dead. Whoever could walk was lined up in rows of five. That was when we met Dr. Joseph Mengele. He was called the Doctor of Death. Dr. Mengele said there are six kilometers to walk through the camp. He selected people to line up on the left and said they would be leaving on trucks. He picked out sick people, old people, young kids. I was a little guy and they picked me out to go to the left. Because of his experience in other camps, Alexander was shrewd enough to strategically position himself. Every time I had to go to work, I tried to get in with the biggest, strongest men, he said. Being a little guy, I figured I could get away with a lot of stuff. When I looked around here, I only saw sick people, old people, not the types I wanted to be around. To survive, Alexander knew he needed to make sure to, uh, to, to, make, needed to make it to the right side. One night around midnight, I noticed Dr. McGilley had to move had moved down the line. Had it been daytime, I could not have done it. I had to make it to the other side. Everybody on the left side was taken away in trucks. If I hadn't gotten away in the dark that night, said Alexander, I would not be standing here this morning. Why had he survived? Because this was where God wanted me to be. That was how an ultimate optimist outlived his would-be killers by Ari Noonan from the community section. Little time left. Let's... Uh, Right, uh, let's read this, a Bigel Torah from Rabbi Nicole Gusick, Sink or Swim. How do boats float? One must wonder how equipped Noah was to build the ark. According to Archimedes' principle, a boat includes specific features to ensure successful floating. One opinion is that the boat must displace more water than the sum of its own weight. It is difficult to know if Noah understood the terms buoyancy or gravitational pull, but spiritually, the understanding that space should be created to enable something or someone to exist is a principle even non-builders can adopt. How do we displace our contractive piece of ourselves to make room for others to float, for others to feel lifted, for others to prosper? The Kabbalists called this action Zimitzum, God contracted God's self, taking a breath inward for the world to come, out, to come into existence. The waters of the world are displaced as Noah's Ark begins its fateful journey. For any kind of creation to occur, something else must shift, disengage, diminish, or be reaffirmed. Where and when we are willing to move back to let others shine? Or when is it that we, all mu that we must give up or modify uh, to let another version of ourselves move forward? Creation unfolds as creation adapts. We are the builders of our own arcs. We map, our, we map out the blueprints for the ways our dreams take shape. And it, is up to, and it is up to us. Sailing may include a modification of the original journey. 
With each storm and crash wave, we can choose to sink or fight to swim. May our arc stay afloat, shifting, turning, contracting, and ultimately moving forward. Shabbat Shalom. That was Sink or Swim by Rabbi Nicole Gusick from Abigail Torah. Rabbi Nicole Gusick is a rabbi at Sinai Temple. All right, let's conclude for, uh, with some ads from the Jewish Journal Marketplace section, November 4th through the 10th, 2022. Uh, keep up with what's happening in town, jewishjournal.com slash calendar. And here's one, Small Claims Specialist, Express Consultation, Comprehensive Analysis, Cease and Desist Letter, Court Day Teammate. Contact 424-272-1747. Email Ariella at smallclaimsspecialist.com. Website is www.smallclaimsspecialist.com. And folks, that will do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. For everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all here. Until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.